live from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California, and it's cold. Thank you for tuning into the Water Zone. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Starr, along with our other hosts from our ag show, our wonderful people from our micro-irrigation group, Ms. Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. And this is Ag Week. Uh, Mr. Mike Barron, who I affectionately call Mikey PD is off tonight. Uh, he usually uh, gets a night off when we do our act show. Ingie and Paul, how are you today? Hey, we're doing great. You? You're doing good. Well, we're going to do a little bit of uh, California water news first, and, and you're, you're more than welcome to join in and ask any questions of uh, the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, how are you doing tonight, Bob? We're doing good. We're doing real good. So you may have extra questions from Chris, uh, I mean from uh, uh, Inge and Paul. Uh, As I said, Mike's off tonight. Uh, He's actually, he said his daughter's modeling some dress on QVC tonight. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's staying home to watch the, watch watch the grandson. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, it's cool. So, I know he's if, uh, if he's listening great, I, I hope he is. If not, I hope he enjoys what he's watching. So, uh so tell us what's going on. I hear that the tunnel hearings are lunging forward. Oh, my word. Is this has this been like such a thing? Uh the state water board had had a decision to make, you know, the state Department of Water Resources uh, set, announced that we're gonna they were gonna build the tunnels in stages, um, you know, phase one, one tunnel, and then you know, and then the second maybe later on, and then uh, and the so this went down at the state water board as they're opening the hearing. So then the opponents of the tunnel immediately filed uh, to stop the the hearing because. Now the now it's significantly changed, and e- even the Department of Water Resources said, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna do this, and we're gonna put out another environmental impact report." So you know that's now you know so the tunnel opponents are saying, "Wow, that's a big change," you know, and uh, and that really kind of it makes everything we've heard so far irrelevant, and we need to go back to the beginning. <laughs> so the state water board took a week to think about it, and they decided, no, uh, you know, the Department of Water Resources is saying um, they might build it, but, you know, not necessarily in stages, maybe not. And then the other thing that happened last week is that the Metropolitan Water District, uh, some of the, three of the board members uh, floated the idea that maybe Metropolitan would finance the entire construction of the water fix and then let the Central Valley contractors come to them when they needed water, which is a good chance that that's going to happen. I mean, that they're going to need water. So, you know, it's it's all quite interesting to see what happens. One tunnel or two, who knows, but the state water board says we're going ahead with the hearing. Yeah, I know know the other gentleman from Metropolitan Water was... Uh, saying it would be more cost-effective to do it all at once, and and it's better for backup, and all that. What was really funny, I'm on I'm on a committee f- uh, for doing the San Bernardino Water Conference that's coming up in August, and, and one of the one of the topics they picked is what's happening with the you know this project, and they call it Plan A, and then they go, well, what's Plan B? Because this could take forever still. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, it's in, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. They really want to get this project approved before Governor Brown leaves office because we don't know what the next governor coming in is going to, you know, do with this project. Uh, it, it's a good chance, you know, so far none of them are on record of support, and a few of them are on record of being not in support. So, you know, it's really the effort is to get this approved. And, you know, my concern is that if the project falls apart, we're talking about 10 years of planning, $250 million spent. If this project goes down the tube, I don't think anyone's going to want to touch it for a while. They're going to back off. Can we get our our tax money back? No, no. Well, I, actually, the taxpayers, per se, haven't paid for that. Oh. Those that that planning process has been paid by paid for by the water contractors mm. in various sorts of ways. So, um, you know, 
not taxpayer money necessarily. Well, that's that's good to know. But at this point, Chris, I think it's spent, right? There's no way to, you know, it's a oh, sunk yeah. cost. Yeah. yeah, and and there's been some challenge to the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal government, because they chipped in a little bit of money. And so, you know, the, the opponents of this project, uh, have they look at everything down to the micro dollar, you know, and object to anything that they can. And when you have a large-scale project like that, a lot of things happen, you know. Well, I'm glad I'm not in uh, government service or office. I wouldn't want to be stuck with this. There's another thing I read that uh, the California Water Commission was blasted for sitting on dam funds. Um, they were tasked with dispersing the Prop 1 funds, and I guess that didn't happen. Well, you know, it, it, I think that the California Water Commission is getting really unfairly, you know, hammered here. Uh, the the spending of the funds for water storage is very limited by the words in the legislation. It is a very complicated uh, formula. And they're just, you know, the Water Commission is following what the legislation told them to do. And they did not reject those projects. They said that, you know, it, the, the funding that they're requesting, they needed more information for them to back up. The, the claims that they were making on their project. So they're not dead in the water. I think that the papers are overstating that. But also this idea, these, uh, you know, uh, state legislators uh, deliver a uh, petition to the Water Commission telling them that they should fund uh, sites and temperance flat reservoirs with this money. Then that's not how it was supposed to go down. Mm-hmm. You know, the the... They're supposed to, these projects are supposed to compete. And there's a lot of worthy projects in the mix, not just necessarily sites and temperance flat. So, you know, the, the Water Commission has to follow what the legislators handed them, but they're really getting hammered for it. It's like, it's kind of sad, but, you know, onward we go. Uh, there are, you know, these uh, proponents of these storage projects will be uh, submitting more information to back up, the, you know, their claims for benefits that they wish to be paid for. And I think that we will see the money eventually get spent. But, you know, they can only do what the legislature told them to do. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I had, I had read the other day uh, some newspaper article. I, I, I don't have it with me, so I can't quote it exactly, but... The, the reporter said something that they were like NATO, no action, talk only. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, they've been criticized for not spending the money sooner, but there there were some uh, limitations on when they could. They couldn't even begin to consider it until, you know, like December of 2016. And then they, they have this complicated formula, and, it, it, you know, it, there was a lot of paperwork that those uh, projects had to produce, so it's just kind of a cumbersome process that they've been handed. Um, I'm not sure they deserve all the criticism that they've been getting. Probably some. I mean, it's the government, right? Yeah. But you know, but well, I I think they've been a little unnecessarily hammered. I think people sometimes get hyped up for situations and they throw their voice in things when they don't know the whole story. They just hear peripherals or get news from certain places and not get the whole full story. So, yeah, I mean, it happens every day in, in, in everything that you hear. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. So now now I, I also heard that there's some anti-dam activists uh, that were rallied in Sacramento to show opposition to the uh, Nevada Irrigation Sentinel uh, Reservoir. Yeah, this is a reservoir, not very popular one. It's sort of in a remote area of the Sierra. Um, and, I mean, these these you know, they're, they're actually the people putting for. I think they want to build this dam there, and here's some water storage funds. So they tried to apply for it. They didn't get any funding for it. They And even the, the those dam proponents said, you know, this, this project really doesn't qualify for this type of funding. But the people that don't want that dam want to make sure it's known. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's one of the more unpopular uh, dam projects. Um, the other one is this uh, project in semi-tropic water bank. 
You think right. you think they'll have the same resistance? Oh, they they actually have even more. Oh. Uh, so there's <laughs> lot, uh, numerous people showing up uh, to to protest that one. So you know, not all of these storage projects necessarily are worthy ones, but there are some really good ones in the mix. Yeah. So you know, we'll see what what happens. Well, I know earlier in the back when the drought was San Joaquin, different subjects. San Joaquin water users were cut off during the drought, and uh, I guess they took it to an appellate court and won. Yeah, this is this is going to have some implications. This is really uh, what the issue really is that these are very old senior water rights, you know, and senior water rights are have the most power in the water rights system. They generally get to get all their water before anybody else. And these are water rights pre-1914. You know, we, we had some water code written in 1914, and by that time a number of people had already established their uses of water. And so they, the you know, legislature at that time just punted and said, okay, everyone before 1914, they just get all this water, and everybody after this are subject to all these regulations. So when we had the big drought and the water went very, very low, the state water board needed to try to go back to these people with these pre-1914 rights, and they tried to say, you have to be cut off. You know, you can't, you can't divert. And they, you know, filed a lawsuit and said that, you know, we didn't get due process, we didn't get a chance to challenge this, and the courts agreed. And, I mean, this is really a problem, and I think this is one of those overarching issues that we're going to have to deal with in the coming decades. You know, we have very senior water rights, and, you know, people are getting water, you know, because they got here first, and, and people that aren't getting water include cities and, you know, the environment and uh, and a lot of other farmers. and. You know, as our hydrology changes, um, are we really going to be able to support these kinds of old, old agreements? I, I think there's going to be um, some reckoning going to have to happen here. Yeah. It's not going to get pretty down the road. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> as supplies get tighter, it just gets harder. Yeah. Now, I know this is a change of subject for a second and not in California, but have you been keeping up or know anything about what's been happening in Cape Town? Um, I heard that they, you know, they got to push it back a little bit because residents are conserving, but no, that's pretty ugly. Yeah. I, there was an op-ed, uh, a gentleman who was on our show and a good friend named Seth Siegel wrote a book called Let There Be Water, and I didn't get a chance to read the op-ed. I just got a note from him to go read it, and I, and I was on my way here, so I didn't get a chance to do it. But he said um, it's more political than anybody knows and had to do with differences between Israel and their relationship, uh, South Africa's relationship with Iran. So I got I got a download. I didn't know if you had heard about that or Ingi or anybody had read that. That was uh, I didn't get a chance to read it, but... Uh, it sounds it was it was a taunting uh, and tempting uh, uh, thing to to see when he sent it to me. So I'm gonna check that out. But the good news I heard is that it, uh, the winter storm is expected to drop several inches of snow up at the Sierra Nevada. Yeah, Yay. yeah, we'll take all we can get. Yep, That's we need some more. Always good. Very very dry. Yep. I, I hope it, uh, they, they said it, they we already had like six or seven inches the other day, and then they're expecting the same amount uh, tonight through Friday. Yeah, we're just far, far behind. Yeah. I mean, but but let's be happy, we'll take it. You know, <laughs> we'll take anything at this point. Do you think, with what you know and what you read, and same, same question for Inge or Paul, you know, we all read science things and, and hear different things from everybody. Is this just a cycle, and then in a couple of years it's going to go back where we'll have plenty of plenty of water, and then there'll be another cycle where we'll be plenty dry again? Or do we really not know, or do we not trust anybody who tells us these things? Well, I think that the climate scientists are saying that this is kind of the way it's going to be, really dry, dry drought and really gushing wet seasons. Yeah. With it's probably the new normal. More, it's the new normal. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we go from the wettest 
year on record in some ways to the driest year on record. Wow. In some ways, you know, it's. Um, I think it's a changing hydrology. Yeah. It's going to be different, I guess, and uh, I guess we all have to adapt and, uh, and and really, you know, it makes one stop and think, you know, you know, everybody just takes water, well, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people take water for, for granted, and, you know, they just go through every single day not even thinking about it, but I guess everybody's really going to have to stop and think hard about uh, the future, because even, even five years, ten years is going to make a difference, so... We'll oh, see. yeah. Well, our, our, our next guest can weigh in on that. Um, works for a very <laughs> large farm in the Central Valley, and they've done a lot of things to address these issues. Uh, so they're one of the people that is thinking about it, does recognize it, and they're doing some pretty exciting things. So Excellent. Um, we'll oh. look forward to that visit. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, anyway, we're going to go to our break. Uh, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. You're more than welcome to stay on. If you'd like, uh, we, uh, Ingi and Paul have a great guest, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with the Water Zone. And so stay by, stand by. Good evening. Hey, well, welcome back to the Water Zone on this nice Thursday here in California. A little chilly. Uh, I think we're going to get some rain, at least what they tell us. But the, those burning questions that I always want to go to somebody who really knows is Ingi Bisconer and Paul. McFadden and guys, welcome to the show, and I'll turn it over to you for your guest. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, bro. Thank you, Rob. I, I guess if we could uh, predict the weather, we'd uh, we'd really be popular. Uh, I don't think we can do that, but we can bring. I think we can bring really good guests on our uh, uh, water zone show, and uh, tonight is no different. We have um, well, he's a ball of fire. It's Danny Royer. He's the vice president of technology at Bulls Farming, and um, welcome to the show, Danny. And good evening. It's nice to join you. Great. Um, uh, I heard Danny speak on a panel last week at the World Ag Expo in Tulare, and Paul and I thought that he'd be a great guest for tonight uh, to uh, revisit kind of the topic that he covered there, which is technology on the farm, what's hot and what's not. So uh, without further ado, let me uh, introduce Danny to our listening audience, and we'll dive into some some questions and learn about what a high-tech farm in Central California is doing. So Danny has been working in specialty crop farming for about 10 years, and two years ago he joined the Bulls Farming Company team as the Vice President of Technology. And mind you folks, that's that's uh, not a common title in uh, agriculture today, so it's very unique and innovative. So prior to Bulls, Danny worked in logistics, and management roles for large, vertically integrated agricultural operations in California's San Joaquin Valley. And prior to his professional career, Danny received a BS in Ag System Management from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So um, you're in good company, Danny, because Paul is also a Cal Poly alum. And so as the Vice President of Technology at Bowles Farming Company, Danny is responsible for researching and integrating technologies that have benefit to the farm. Danny focuses much of his attention on how technology is going to change how decisions are made and how the processes behind those decisions are executed. He's a firm believer in servant-style leadership, which we'll hear a little bit more about. And cultivating crops is what Danny focused on in the early part of his career, but today he's also very focused on cultivating the success of those around him. So, Danny, tell us, tell us where you're from, what led you to a career in agriculture, and then a few words describing the history and significance of bold farming. All right, yeah. So uh, I'm from Merced, uh, right in the kind of center of California. Um, born and raised, other than my five years in uh, San Luis Obispo for college, that's uh, where I've spent all my time. Um, growing up, uh, I don't have an ag background. Um, I just got into 4-H and FFA, and that kind of guided me to uh, Cal Poly. Um, and then after Cal Poly, I was really lucky to get connected to a, a large farmer in the, the Merced area, and they brought me on, and I got to, just got a lot of neat experiences in uh, transplanting and harvesting operations at a large scale, um, large scale irrigation oper, uh, operations and, and projects. And uh, from there, I got to go work for some larger companies and do some, some more fun things that involved a lot of logistics. Um, and in doing one of those jobs, I was actually uh, out working um, as a service provider for Canon Michael, Bulls' CEO. 
and he was out flying a drone around, and um, I actually called him and said, hey, is that you? And that conversation um, started uh, uh, me ending up working for Canon uh, a few months later. So um, I have a really fun job, a uh, really unique job, like you said. There aren't very many, very many vice presidents of technology out there in ag, um, but a lot of that has to do with um, kind of bulls itself. Um, Bowles Farming Company is a very unique farm. Um, I thought the conversation prior to this was a, a great segue because we are one of those farms that holds those really, really senior water rights. Um, in right, fact, right. The, the original founders of, uh, of um, Bowles Farming Company were Henry Miller and Charles Lux, and they uh, built the Miller and Lux Empire um, starting in the late 1850s. And um, they were kind of influential in water policy in the late 1800s in California. And some of the, the, the case law that they were involved with helped shape that pre-1914 um, policy. So we are uh, one of those farmers that has the, the benefit of having those senior water rights. And um, a part of that, uh, you know, is that we feel we have a great responsibility to use that water um, as efficiently and as effectively as we can. So a lot of what I do in my job is focused on how we uh, optimize use of our water. And again, I don't think that my role is anything new, um, really, though, when you look at Bulls Farming Company, the family, and the legacy that, that they have um, in California. So a little bit about me and a little bit about Bulls. Danny, this is Paul McFadden. When you were growing up in Merced, uh, obviously ag's all around you, a lot of uh, permanent crops and, and uh, row crops. Uh, what really, you said 4-H and FFA kind of drew you into the Cal Poly. Just curious, what was the, uh, something that maybe triggered? And the, the folks that are listening tonight may, may uh, be thinking along those same lines of how, how to take someone from a non-ag background and, and uh, uh, plug them in to obviously a very successful career. You know, in fourth grade, I went to soccer camp at Cal Poly. Um, and I visited the campus in fourth grade. I got to visit some of the farm operations, fell in love, decided then that is exactly where I was going to go, and a lot of my 4-H and FFA involvement was, you know, my strategy to get into Cal Poly. Wow, that's really, really neat. What a fun story. Yeah, I've, um, I've been very lucky to, to, to set goals and be able to achieve them, so it's, it's fun to look back. I've always been well, jealous of people who knew exactly what they wanted to do when they were <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> oh, Can I jump in for a quickie question? <clears throat> um, Danny, when you decided to go in this type of work, do you find that the farmers, most farmers today are open to learning about new technologies or, or, or you think some of them are still hard to convince to try new things? You know, I think uh, one of the greatest things about, about my job I have now is I speak pretty candidly to these things. And um, I would say that the baby boomer generation in ag right now has a hard time being open. Um, and I think that it's primarily just because it's, when you look at how technology changes how you do things, there's big changes that can happen for people, and it can be really scary. And if you spent 30 or 40 years developing these processes that you're doing on your farm, and all of a sudden, here's the new tools that are kind of going to completely change how you do things. I don't know that at that point in my career, I would be really open to changing what I was doing either. So I think that there's a lot of things that are going on that, that might be impacting people's idea about technology and ag right now. But uh, I think as generational shifts happen, that a lot of those challenges are going to, um, you know, become less impactful. I think also uh, I read somewhere recently that uh, 90% or somewhere in that uh, vicinity, 90% of all the technology that we know today uh, was uh, developed post-1950. So if you take the average age of a farmer today, uh, that puts their, uh, uh, you know, that that's approximately when they were born. So mm -hmm. in, the, in the early 1950s or late 1940s, uh, you know, that's a big, big technology jump for a lot of folks, uh, especially mm -hmm. if someone used to 
working with their hands and producing food to right. doing something like you're doing today, using drones and such. So um, I guess that would bring me to my next question. Uh, last year during the uh, California Irrigation Institute, you shared how you were using advanced technology, uh, like for irrigation management, for example, such as drones. If you could uh, maybe uh, elaborate a little bit more on that to our listening audience. That, uh, we hear about drones and, and uh, on the news, uh, not always in a good light, uh, but I think uh, the use of drones in farming is fascinating to me, and I think that our listening audience would be uh, uh, interested to hear about that. Yeah, so I think that the, the future for drones in ag is, is very, very bright. Um, but most of what we're doing today, to be completely honest, is definitely at an orange level. Um, the, there's some real challenges with drones on a farm like ours. We're a 12,000-acre farm, and we're pretty contiguous. But even to try to do a, a flight with a drone at four, under 400 feet for us um, once a week is an almost unsurmountable you know, feat. So what we've done is decided to look at really specific cases with the drones, and let's figure out what types of sensors and what types of jobs they can do with the anticipation that FSA, FAA rules are going to change and, you know, the technology is going to continue to improve and continue to cost less. But what we want to do is figure out how these new technologies are going to change how we do things on the farm. So one of the biggest areas we've looked at, because it's a big expense for us um, in the last five years, is drip irrigation repair. Um, Seventy percent of our farm is on subsurface drip irrigation, and, you know, we have gophers, you have tractors that, you know, maybe the driver turns the GPS off, or you have a number of things that can happen that can nick the tape and cause leaks. Well, once you get a full canopy in the crop, there's no way to go really detect that leak. And even before you get a full canopy, the current practice is have a guy drive around in an ATV and look for a leak. Well, there's a lot of time being spent driving around on our ATVs, and so we decided maybe we could figure out how to target where those leaks are with the drone, somehow send uh, that GPS location to their phone. They know right where to go. Now we've saved a lot of time in terms of our maintenance. Um, we've shifted our strategy away from thermal right now just because the thermal technology is still super expensive and drones crash a lot. So uh, we don't want to put expensive cameras on the drones yet. Um, so what we're doing now is just simple RGB cameras, uh, or we actually really like the, the DJI Mavic. Um, it's a little tiny, almost handheld drone, and what we're doing is flying fields pre-season uh, and then turning the irrigation system on, and then about four hours after we turn the system on, going and looking for leaks. And what the drone's able to do is pick up a difference in the dark spot where the leak is at versus the light spot where the dirt is dry. And so we're working on... Um, finding some partners to do some machine learning to classify those spots, quantify them, and then create basically a work order where here's 10 leaks in the field. This is based on the wetness area. This is the largest one, so prioritize this one first, and then so on down the line until you get to your smallest area. And the idea is to significantly reduce the amount of labor it takes to um, maintain the irrigation system. Um, so that's what we're doing with drones specifically, um, we're using them a lot for some crop monitoring. Uh, but again, these are all very, very um, R&D-based um, projects, and most of them involve a lot of correlation um, analysis. So we're trying to use the drone layer in combination with a number of other layers of data to find positive correlations and find consistencies in, in primarily our soils. Um, so that's uh, just one area that the drones are playing a role for us. It's uh, a lot of fun. There's a lot of new technology coming out every day, and I think that drones are definitely going to play a big role, but uh, must have a team devoted just to R&D right now. I'd hold your kind of hold back and wait another two or three years until the technology advances a little bit more um, and is ready for kind of plug-and-play on farms. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I, I can just imagine all sorts of applications. And actually, I've recently interviewed a farmer in the Midwest who's using drones uh, yeah, for irrigation scheduling, for instance, and for also, like you, detecting where there's a problem. In his case, it was clogging. And then after detecting clogging, they were able to remedy the system and watch the crop go green again. So it does work. And 
but there's satellite, there's drones, there's all sorts of different um, options. So we'll we'll look forward to um, um, watching what you guys are doing on the R and D level, and uh, uh, maybe maybe uh, link together to see what's going to be commercially viable. So Danny, in Tulare last week, you also had a a very interesting discussion um, on the panel about you know kind of what's hot and what's not in um, technology, not necessarily just irrigation, but information technology and and data and kind of where things are going with how people will buy food. And I think you mentioned some things about Amazon and um, I don't know. So can you kind of give us a snapshot of um, uh, the gist of a little bit of that conversation? I thought it was really interesting and, and the listening audience would probably enjoy it too. Yeah, so in, in that presentation, what sparked the 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 meat of the conversation was I brought up kind of open source and um, that is being something that is hot in, in ag tech right now. Um, and when I talked about open source, I wasn't just talking about, um, you know, data itself in terms of, you know, we want to be able to go in and access all of our tractor data and we want that to be open. Also kind of in open source in our process. So not necessarily IT for, per se, but how we're doing things and how we're looking at things. We're being really transparent about it. And there's a lot of other people out there that have solutions or in other industries that can be related to what we're doing, um, especially in the GIS community. So I really think that where the future of, of ag is going and the future of consumers is, is going is a lot of transparency and the Internet of Things and being able to really understand anything and everything about what's happening in your life. Uh, the connectivity of, of everything in our lives is only going to exponentially um, grow. So we feel that we want to share what we're doing because we're going to be able to come up with better solutions by finding people who want to also share what they're doing. And together, um, we can come up with better solutions that create you know, better outcome for end consumers at the end. So when we say open source, we mean we're sharing how we're doing things, and we invite other people to give us feedback. So, you know, our technology engineer is, you know, has three or four posts now on Medium about different things that he's done for us on the farm. He's built an app that's on on Mapbox, and uh, just finally got a license, so we're out of beta and we're paying, but um, it's super cheap. And instead of having to print maps whenever anybody comes to the farm now, they can download our app and go see our crop map. So they can go see every field, um, they can see the crop that's there, and they can see how many acres it is. And that on our farm in the last three months has been extremely popular because everybody always just needs to know where they are on the farm. And, and it's hard to do that on a paper map that you can't see yourself on. So yeah. uh, how we did that and how he built that is out there. Um, and we invite people to go look at it, and we invite feedback. We are looking at, um, you know, in developing our management zones and the thought process behind how we're using Veris data is one of the layers to do that and how we're using different um, components of QGIS, which is a free GIS platform, to build those management zones. Unfortunately, um, a lot of those types of things are what people are building businesses on right now. So there's um, definitely pushback in, in me saying that, like, I think you should just share everything. Uh, it's a pretty progressive mindset, but we feel 10 years from now, that mindset and that kind of not settling for somebody saying that, you know, just trust us uh, is, is going to pay off because we're going to continuously be improving ourselves and continuously finding better solutions. So um, open source is, is something that I think is just really important in ag right now, but it is an industry that just, it's a foreign concept. We're very secretive. We we like to, uh, in general, you know, keep to ourselves, and the neighbor does it his way, and I do it my way, and that's just how it is, and we're not really interested in doing anything else. So, yeah, well, most, uh, most software developers want to get paid for the work they do and the, you know, the new methods that they create, so this is very unique that you're willing to do that work and then share it for free with others. How, how, Way different business model, right? <laughs> well, I, I think that the, the value propositions aren't going to be in the, the algorithms or the processes. They're going to be the ability to integrate it on the farm and actually get the people that are on the farm 
use the technology. Um, I think that when you look at, at software and where machine learning and AI are going, what people are coming up with right now is solutions in our brains and the algorithms that we're coming up with in ag are just going to be obsolete in five and ten years. So it, I'm just not you know, convinced that a business model built on those types of things is going to be super sustainable. And again, that's, I read a lot of books that talk about what's going to happen ten years from now. And, and so I look at how we're, how we're handling our data and how we're handling our information in, in that way. And full transparency and, and people being able to really be connected to the farm, um, I think is going to be real. You know, we really want, we're, we're marking all of the cotton that comes on our, off of our farm with a DNA tag. So that way we can build the RFID system to the gin. So we're actually going to be able to tag a piece of cotton from the field, the specific location in the field, all the way through the bale of cotton. Now, at the manufacturing facility, you may not be able to get to the point where you know which shirt, you know, came from which field, but we're getting pretty close. And so That's we're amazing. bringing transparency. You know, we're trying to get to the point where it really is dirt to shirt, and you just have a QR code that you scan at, at Costco, and here's all the metrics about what it took to grow this, to grow this cotton. And, and um, people do want to know that now, right? You know, I, I think that they're... I believe that people do. Um, I know that me and my family do, and a lot of our friends do. Uh, I also think that um, internationally there's a big demand for uh, safe and high-quality crops. And as California growers, we're, we're subject to the regulations and the progressive uh, legislature of California. And instead of griping about it, I really feel like we should be figuring out how to leverage it in marketing and taking advantage of it. People around the world want to buy things from California because it's safe. And yeah. it's good quality. You can't say that yeah. everywhere in the world. So creating transparency about things coming from California, I don't see how that's a, a negative thing for any California farmer. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a marketing tactic and use the regulations in a creative way. Well, and, and if, if people in the EU and, and people in, in Japan and people in China or people in India where, I mean, China and, and India were wealth is being grown faster than it is in the United States. I mean, maybe we need to be thinking about those markets a little bit more than our domestic markets, at least in California, where we're growing specialty high-value crops. Um, we're yeah. not the Midwest. All right. Well, over to you, Paul. Speaking of people, uh, you in your presentation at uh, the World Ag Expo uh, last week, you mentioned how children of farm workers are getting uh, educated uh, in the, in the high schools and junior colleges and, and uh, universities. And then uh, coming back to the farm, could you maybe uh, help us uh, get a better handle on that, how that how that's working? Yeah, so I've been real fortunate through the last probably three or four years of my career to, to run into um, young graduates or young students um, out of uh, a couple different universities. But for me, UC Merced, just because of the proximity, has been uh, uh, one that I've just gotten a lot of exposure to, and um, kids that grew up in farm-working families um, took advantage of being in the top 10% of their high school class, didn't want to go do farm work, ended up at UC Merced because UC Merced is you know, one of the newer UCs, so that top 10% guarantee, UC Merced is where a lot of those kids go, um, and they go in, they're getting an engineering degree, and what we're finding is uh, because of their understanding of the work and what ag is um, at the dirt level, um, they not only have a good understanding and perspective on how to solve some of the problems, they have a real sense of purpose in solving them too. So I've gotten to meet some really um, passionate young uh, engineers, um, environmental engineers coming out of different universities and uh, who have backgrounds um, in ag but are coming in and, and changing how we're looking at things. And it's exciting um, because they're, they're the, it's the type of energy we need and they're bringing in new types of competencies that we really need in, in ag right now. I don't know that we need a whole lot more crop scientists, but, man, we need a lot more mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and data scientists. <laughs> yeah, that, that was an interesting point in Tulare that you said that you know, I mean, of course, at some point we need agronomists too to figure out how to grow the crop. Absolutely. But, 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 
but more importantly, you're saying we need people who can build the networks that will capture the data that we're now able to ca- to capture on a farm mm-hmm. and feed it into the system so that we know during harvest when, you know, the truck is full and, you know, all the logistics and, um, you know, down to the irrigation management. Who knows? Maybe at some point you're going to be able to uh, see what the irrigation uniformity of the system is as well as detecting major problems like, like leaks or clogging. I, I'm not sure. Where mm-hmm. do you think that's going? You know, I, I, it's exciting. Um, I think on the agronomy side, uh, if, if I'm an agronomist right now, um, and we're fortunate on our farm, we just hired an in-house agronomist, and he's super stellar, and he's super open to sharing everything he knows. And ultimately, all of the, the things that an agronomist learns and, and, and knows, there's there's a decision-making hierarchy or a decision-making matrix that they go through to do things. Um, ultimately, though, their eyes are the sensor that they have that is most valuable for them because they see things in the field and are able to go into that decision-making matrix and make a decision. So kind of what we're trying to do is, is automate as much of that matrix as possible for the PCA. So all he's needing to use is his eyes and then all of the other things that go on in the background we're helping automate, and eventually the technology will be there to replace the eyes, too. So uh, in, in the, the agronomy side, we're always going to need really good agronomists and good um, soil scientists and, and crop bio- or biologists who understand the living systems of the crops that we grow. But their day-to-day decisions on the farm are probably going to end up changing. And instead of every day going out and looking for bugs, they're going to be helping the data scientists and the computer scientists build the neural network to automate the process for the latest sensor that, you know, the new company has put out. Um, so the role is always going to be there. It's just going to change. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Then on and the, when you start – go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then you mentioned, you know, the irrigation systems and, you know, distribution uniformity. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think we're – real close to, to those types of things happening three to five years, I think there's going to be commercially viable products out there that are, you know, in higher value crops that, that it makes sense to, um, you know, make the investment that's going to come with those types of systems. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you start talking about neural networks for a farm, and uh, I remember on the panel discussion there was um, a woman from the Midwest who was kind of, um, I think this, sort of talk scared her and, you know, felt that it was a threat to the small family farm and why why can't we just continue being small family farms and everybody just leave us alone? But as you pointed out, you know, being left alone has created some problems, right? <laughs> we, um, yeah. Which has spawned new regulations. And so we actually need to be doing a little better job of, of watching what we do. Yeah, and if we, you know, if we embrace the machines and we ourselves can be agile enough to teach ourselves to control them, uh, they, they can make our lives a lot easier. They can make our farms a lot better. Um, and, and, you know, I try to really have an optimistic. There's, there's definitely people out there when you talk about artificial intelligence and robotics and machine learning that get a little leery. Um, but ultimately, there's a human who has to control those systems, and we just need to control them very intelligently. I'm not afraid of it. I'm very excited about it, clearly, but I've also yeah. been, you know, done a lot of research into it and read a lot, so I'm, I'm, it's just not something that's foreign to me. I think right. that that's where technology, this brings up a great point. Uh, we've talked a lot about ag tech, and I think that one of the things that, that I'm learning more and more is that it's not necessarily about ag tech. It's about technology in agriculture and not just the technology itself, the people in technology infiltrating agriculture and becoming a part of agriculture operations. Um, so as I think that's going to happen naturally, I think where we are right now is there's a lot of people in technology that have started technology companies and they're trying to sell services to agriculture. And because of that, there's there's a lot of um, cultural challenges or just historical challenges in how business has been done and it's just not meshing. But I think the more that people who are in technology really integrate and become a part of farming operations or agriculture operations, that's where things are going to start moving and where you're going to see change really start happening. Well, your farm is just has a, you know, over 150-year 
history of innovation from the time Henry Miller pasted a note on a tree to get the water rights, right? And then, you know, canals were built and <laughs> all sorts of um, infrastructure upgrades. And so you're, you're unique in some ways, but what I'm hoping is that other farmers will be like you. But what are those barriers for other farmers to adopt the technology and how can we overcome them? Well, I think I don't think ag is too different than any any other industry. You know, there's early adopters, and then you you know the next fifteen percent, and then you have the next. You know, you can follow the curve of of adoption. Um, in terms of where the hurdles are or uh, barriers, I have to look at not so much what the barriers are, but what's really working on our farm. And uh, what's working on our farm is the people. Um, we have really shifted the organization. We completely changed how, um, in the last year, we've changed, you know, 50 years of how we ran our organization. We really shifted it quite a bit. We've completely changed the, the team. Um, and uh, that has been that shift in people and our ability to manage the cultural change, too, with, hey, we're going to, everybody's going to have an iPhone, and, yeah, we know where you are, and, there's things that we know about you, but that's not why you have an iPhone. Managing those cultural challenges along the way, um, but it all, I think, comes down to people and your ability to integrate, create buy-in, and then get people to use the technology um, effectively. Uh, that That's the biggest barrier right now, I think, for technology and ag is people. Can I ask a quick hey, question? Interesting. Can you can I ask a quick, mm-hmm. quick question? You know, when you're talking about the barriers for other farms, you obviously work for a huge farming operation, and there are small, smaller family operations mm-hmm. going. Do you think a barrier, aside from its new technology and they're afraid of it, maybe they don't have the funding to do that? Is there is there opportunities for rebates or anything that like anybody gives out so so smaller farms can can improve their their processing and and and, and have a better uh, financial uh, endpoint? So this is where I think open source comes into play. Um, there's a ton of solutions out there that are free. I mean, Google Suite, we're paying for business Google Suite because we're a large business. But if you're a small business or a family farmer uh, and you have two or three employees or, or even, you know, maybe you have a, a half a dozen employees and then your wife is helping you run the business, Google Suite is the best thing that's ever happened to you because you can now create documents, you can share things, you can create permissions. There's all of these things you can do, and you can do it for free. Um, you can get on YouTube and learn how to do pretty much anything using Google. You can get Google Sheets, all of the things, or you can pay the, the license for Microsoft Suite every year. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you look at the, the technology component, I get, because we're a big farm, we get to, pull, not, I don't want to call it plain, but we do get to look at the, the higher cost um, research, so the drones, the sensors. But there's a lot of technology out there, too, that smaller farms could be taking advantage of uh, that, that's free. QGIS is a, is a free GIS tool, and anybody that knows how to use Microsoft Excel a little bit and Google Earth a little bit, you know, with a couple weeks of watching QGIS videos, you could become a pretty good GIS, you know, um, administrator for your farm. You could create great maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to be willing to take that time to, to sit down and learn something new. How can yeah. how, how can they buy technology equipment like sensors and these things? Are there are there are there funds available from somewhere in the state or from yes. the federal government? The, there were. Um, there's definitely for irrigation technology. There was wheat funding. Um, I'm not exactly sure where the funding is at on that. The last I heard, uh, things aren't looking good for the wheat funding. But that. We've taken advantage of that program. Uh, we have a, a system that allows us to, we have soil moisture sensors, and we've done a bunch of soil analysis to create management zones in a pistachio orchard. And we use soil moisture sensors to irrigate each one of those zones independently and specifically to that zone's needs. Um, and that was partially funded by uh, sweep funding. Um, NRCS ha- always has great irrigation efficiency uh, funding. Local irrigation districts usually uh, have some sort of funding source. So there are other mechanisms uh, for the sensors and kind of the more hardware side of, of the tech. Uh, it's, it's usually just going down to your FSA office or your local NRCS office and, and asking. 
Great. Benny, uh, if I could uh, ask you a little bit about uh, servant-style uh, leadership. You, we mentioned it in your introduction, and, and so in the uh, few minutes we have left, if you could just explain that to uh, our listeners and, and how you are implementing it on the farm as well as others uh, in, the, in the organization. Yeah, so um, you know, it's not a it's a pretty popular idea. Uh, the twenty one irrefutable twenty one irrefutable laws of leadership, uh, John C. Maxwell. Um, I read it uh, about eight years ago, and it, it really shifted how I looked at how I manage people. And um, I have since reading that book and, and reading a lot more about leadership, really changed my attitude uh, in terms of being a boss. Um, I don't look at myself as a boss in, in really any situation unless there's just a decision that needs to be made and the boss is the one who has to make it. But uh, I look at myself as a coach. And most of what I'm trying to do is find people who are not in a position to reach their full potential and create systems where uh, maybe I had a responsibility or I walk into a position where I have responsibility and roles Let's find people around me that I know aren't reaching their full potential, and I'm going to let, give them a little bit of my responsibility and build them up. And as you do that, I've never found that I stopped finding things to be responsible for. But as you do that, you start building up people around you, and the next thing you know, you have a team of people that are as capable as you were when you started your job two years ago. And what does that mean for your organization? Um, and if those people can go then to the exact same thing that you did for them to the people that are now maybe working under them a little bit, you can create a culture where everybody's just trying to help one another. And it sounds a little bit utopian, but uh, if you hire right and you bring the right people in and you really promote a culture that um, is is open and uh, honest, it, it's, it's a really great place to be. Uh, and we've created, we've been able to really create a culture like that at Bowles, and I've been fortunate enough that to have a, a boss and a CEO and president at Bulls that he himself is a servant leader and he does the same thing. He, he allows us to take on a little bit of his responsibility and he gives us the freedom to give away that responsibility as we find people who are capable of it. And all the while, we're constantly going and finding other ways, you know, to have more value or find other value propositions for the organization. So it, it really comes down to putting your ego aside most of the time and realizing that, hey, I'm going to give a lot of what I have to other people, maybe that's my network, my contacts, I'm going to give that to other people who I know are capable of doing more. And yeah, maybe I'm going to lose responsibility for that, but that just means I can go find something else to do. Alan, that's just so refreshing, Danny. Um, boy, I, uh, I, wish, I wish you luck in expanding that philosophy. And for those who would like to learn more about bold farming and you, how can they um, find you? Um, www.bfarm.com. 